service, so it's going to only be on the scriptures. How many are excited about the Christmas season? How many Christmas folks do we have here? Any bah humbug folks here? It's too much stuff going on, too much business? No? Okay, everybody's pretty much pro-Christmas. I've, I started off bah humbug. Now I'm getting more towards Christmas. I still don't celebrate it officially, but I've learned to appreciate the holiday season, families getting together, food, enjoyment of sharing gifts with one another. And we always like to encourage families, please don't feel any pressure to give any gifts to your kids that would put you into debt. Just bring them a card that says, Merry Christmas. You will have food, lodging, heat, you know, maybe uh, a bed, these kinds of things. And, and how many know that's a good Christmas present for children? to have clothes, food, a place to stay. And if you can do more than that, that's awesome. That's great. Just don't feel any pressure. Open up your Bibles with me, like I said, to Proverbs chapter 30, verse 4. What I would like to do here in this second service is preach on some of the major prophecies of Jesus to encourage you to see how important Jesus' first coming was and then to tie it in to the second coming. Everybody say, the promised one. The promised one. Jesus Christ is unique from all world religious leaders in that he was prophesied almost to the year of when he would come to his exact location, to the, to the city he would be born in, to the family line that he would come, and what he would do. These prophecies serve to be very important because oftentimes religions try to copycat Jesus. But somebody say, there's nobody like my Jesus. Amen. There is nobody like our Jesus. When they try to copycat, they don't even get close. These prophecies that we're going to go through date hundreds of years before Jesus. And if we have time, I'll go into as many as I can today, but I'm going to at least aim for four. Somebody say, let's do it. Amen. Thank you for coming to Second Service. Proverbs chapter 30. Look at verse 4. Did you know, and let me, before I read this right here, all my Bible college students here, all of my students of the Word here, did you know Proverbs had a prophecy about Jesus? And I'm not talking about wisdom being personified. I'm talking about the revelation of who He is. Look at it, and I hope that you learn that Proverbs even speaks about our Jesus in a prophetic sense. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 4. Who has gone up to heaven and come down, whose hands have gathered up the wind, who has wrapped up the waters in a cloak, who has established all the ends of the earth, what is his name, and what is the name of his what? What is the name of his son? Surely you know. Wow, look at that. Proverbs giving a rebuke to people who think they're so smart. He says to them, who is the Son of God? What is His name? We're going to get to that prophecy in just a little bit, but now go with me to Daniel chapter 7 when we get to who He is. When we look at Daniel chapter 7, we see that Daniel is speaking about towards times that are long ahead of him. In the first service, I said it was around 400 B.C. I was, I was off by 200 years. Around 600 B.C., Daniel is writing these prophecies. And I want everyone just to look uh, up at me, please, as we're getting ready to go into it. First service, I discussed how important Daniel is to the coming of Jesus Christ and to those wise men who spent time studying the, the scriptures and the prophecies of Daniel to be able to come to his birth. And so I would encourage you to look over the book 
book of uh, Daniel as well as Matthew chapter 2 from the sermon that I preached so that you can see how important those wise men were to fulfill prophecy as well. Now look at Daniel chapter 7 and look here towards the end. Look at around, let's say, verse 23. Well, let's go back up to verse 19. I want to start so you can see how this prophecy unfolds. Then I wanted to know the meaning. Somebody say the meaning. Okay, you know what? Let's go to verse 13, and then I'll read all the way to verse 19, because I want you to see how the prophecy comes, and then we'll go to the meaning. Somebody say the meaning. Okay, now look at verse 13. We'll start there. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. Now, how many know when Jesus was on the earth, that was one of his most popular names was the Son of Man? Do you all remember that? The number one term that Jesus refers to himself as is the Son of Man. Now, sometimes people think that the Son of Man means that he is just a man. But I want you to notice what the Son of Man does and what the Son of Man receives. And what I would like you to see as the Son of Man, a better definition than simply saying, well, that's a man because he was born and he's the Son of a man. I want you to think of someone who is born like like a man, but is worshiped as God. And this is the revelation of who he is. Look at it right here, verse 13. So it's not like, oh, he's the son of a man, man. That's why he's the son of man. No, watch what's happening here. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. So he looks just like a son of a man. But keep going, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given what? He was given what? Look at verse 14. Come on, help me preach. He was given what? Authority. What's the next one? Glory. And what else? Sovereign power. Wow. Notice this. Let's, let's help them out with the scriptures, my brother. I don't know what's going on there. Maybe that was a little bit confusing. I was looking at my scripture. So let me, let's just wait for them, and I want you guys to see it yourself. Daniel chapter 7, verse 14, and everyone should be able to see it. Because I want you to see what he's given. This is very important. Chapter 7, verse 14. It's going to be up a little bit. Thank you, my brother. Just up a little bit more. There you go. Now, notice what it says. And there was given him what? What is the first one? Well, we're in the King James, but could we please go to the NIV? I, I, I don't know what he's got going on here. Yes, the first one that I want you to see, if you have your Bibles, let's look at the NIV. I apologize for what's going on in the back. I don't know what's happening there. But I want you to look at it in the NIV. Let's stop looking at the screen while he's trying to fix it. If you don't have the Bible in the NIV, look at your phones, because I want you to notice the three things that he is given. He was given what? Authority. Thank you for those who are tracking. And what else was he given? Glory. And what's the last thing? Sovereign power. I just want to pause here. I don't want us to get distracted by this. Brother, just move this off the screen so we don't have to see all this distraction. Thank you. Notice the three things that the Son of Man is given. He is given power. He is given authority. He is given glory. Now, if I was to ask you to describe to me who God is, and in what ways do you think makes him God? Wouldn't you say that God has authority like nobody else? That the authority of God makes him supreme. That when God said something, it's done. If I said, what makes God God? Wouldn't one of the definitions that you have be glory? Wouldn't you say that God is glorious? God, I'm talking about God now. And then if I said, describe to me how strong he is, wouldn't you use the word power? I'm asking you a question. Wouldn't you use the word power? Now, I want you to look at this, authority, glory, and power. How else would you describe God? 
I don't know of any other ways, honestly, to describe God other than saying he has authority, he has glory, and he has power. Do you think that's a coincidence that Jesus is described in the exact same way? No, the Son of Man is being described in a way that God is described. Now, if you don't believe me, let's keep going. And thank you for uh, fixing that problem, brother. It says he was given authority, he was given glory, and he was given power. Now watch. All nations and peoples of every language did what for him? Worshipped him. Somebody say worshipped him. Now, just hold your place there, and just to show you the fulfillment of that, go to um, Matthew chapter 2, part of what we learned in the second service. Go to Matthew chapter 2, because it says all kinds of people, people from all different nations, are going to worship him. When the Magi came, were those Magi, also known as magicians or wise men, were they from Jerusalem? No, the Bible says they came from the east. Look at Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 and onward. Magi came from the east to Jerusalem. And then what did they do? Continue on down. Once they find him, looking towards the end, it says in verse 11, then they opened up their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, or uh, the verse, uh, the person part before that, verse 11. And on coming to the house, they saw the child with the mother Mary, and they bowed down in what to him? worshipped him, and then they gave him the treasures of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So notice this as we go back to Daniel. The Bible prophesies that the Son of Man will be given all of those attributes as God and then will receive worship as God. When you see in Matthew the wise men coming, they're worshiping Jesus, the Son of God. Do you think you should allow somebody to worship you? Do you think you should allow people to worship you? Do you know that even the disciples didn't allow people to bow down and give God thanks in front of them? Do you know that angels did not even allow that? Not only would they not allow you to worship them, they would not allow you to worship God in front of them right on their knees. They forbid that. And yet Jesus Christ receives worship. This is, an, this is a sign to us that he's more than just a man. So why does he use that term, son of man? Why is that here? It's because he looks just like us. And so how does God come when he comes on the earth? Does God come in the form of a dog? Does God come in the form of an animal of any kind? No, and notice that all of the gods of the nations have this kind of animal-like look. If you listen to the, the, to the teachings of these false religions, they often find these animals in similarity with their gods, and they worship these animals alongside of their gods. And yet when our God comes to earth, he comes in the form of man, and that's why he's called the Son of Man. So is it idolatrous to worship Jesus? No, but the Bible says, have no other gods before me, and now we're worshiping Jesus. Is he another god? No, he's God the Son in the flesh. He's the very one we talked about in Proverbs. Now go to Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7. We learn about in Proverbs that God has a son. We learn in the book of Daniel that he's going to come just like us. And then what do we learn in Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14? This is going to be a sign the Lord himself will give this sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him what? And what does Emmanuel mean? Does anybody remember? God with us. So notice this now. Proverbs says God has a son. The book of Daniel says he's going to look like us but be worshipped just like God. 
Then Isaiah says that he's going to be born of a virgin and he will be called God with us. So as I've said before, because I know we have some people in the church named Emmanuel, we've got to be careful with that name because with the Jewish people, it would be blasphemy to point to someone and say, this is Emmanuel. Because you're literally pointing to that person saying, God is with us. Now when we say that name, Emmanuel for people today, we're trying to say, well, God, you know, different than this person, God somewhere other than just this person is with us. We're not saying this person is God. But that's not what the name Emmanuel meant. The name Emmanuel meant God with us. It was a divine title to God, just like Yahweh, just like you wouldn't name your child Yahweh. And I heard uh, one of the rappers name himself, I believe, Jehovah. What was that rapper that named himself that, the old school rapper? Jay-Z. Thank you. Yes. Thank you for your help. He did a play on the name Jehovah, getting very close to blasphemy. Now, the name of Jesus, just to insert this here, is not the same. The name of Jesus has that sense of Yahweh saves. Okay, so when you call somebody Jesus, you're saying Yahweh saves. You're not necessarily calling them Yahweh. There is a distinction. Trust me, the names of God have always been in the people of God uh, in their names. But this specific name says God is going to be here when you see this person. Now, the next thing that we see is born of a virgin. Why did Jesus need to be born of a virgin? Because the Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So if he would have been conceived through a man's seed, the sinful nature would have been given to him. Think about that. Even in other religions like Islam, they say, yes, we believe Jesus was born of a virgin, even when their prophet Muhammad wasn't. Why is that so significant? Because other than Adam being formed first by God of the dust, Jesus is the only one to have a physical body but not come from the seed of a man. Why is that going to be important? As we've learned in our John series, he is going to be the Lamb of God. He's going to be the one that's sinless. Well, if you're going to be sinless, don't you have to be born sinless? Because as the Bible says, all of us are born sinful in our mother's wombs. As a matter of fact, go to Psalm chapter 51. Hold your place in Isaiah and go to Psalm 51. Because some people wonder, they go, well, why was Jesus born of a virgin? What would be the point of that? Why not just have him ascend to earth? Think about it, guys. Let's think about the different ways that Jesus could have came that wouldn't have fulfilled prophecy and wouldn't have been sufficient. If Jesus would have just came from heaven to earth like an angel. Could he have truly been like the Son of Man? No. He could have looked like us, but he wouldn't have had a physical birth like us. He wouldn't have been able to be tempted in all ways like us without sin. In one sense, he would not truly be a man. If he's going to come and be a man, doesn't, have to, doesn't he have to be born like a man? Doesn't he have to grow up like a man, come to a certain age like a man, to wisdom and all of these things? So if he just came from heaven and said, here I am, now crucify me, he would not have been like a man. And yet when he came, he came as a man, but he was more than a man. He's seen even at a young age, knowing his divine identity. He's there at the temple, or at the, yeah, at the temple when the, the family leaves. He's stuck there because they forgot all about him. And what is he doing? He's there teaching and debating with the religious leaders. And when his mom comes back and goes, oh, my goodness, I can't believe I forgot you here. He says, I'm always about my father's business. 
What prophet did we hear talk about God in such a personal way as his father? We never saw anybody talk like that in the scriptures, even though in a general sense, Israel said God was their father. There was nobody walking around going, hey, God is my father, and I'm going to tell you what he thinks about things. And yet Jesus is doing that, and so we see God and man, the God man. Somebody say the God man. And so look at Psalm 51. Look at verse 5. David speaking. Surely I was sinful at what? At birth. And all the parents said, amen. If you don't believe uh, people are born sinners, just have a few little sinners. Have a few little children and watch how sinful they are. Nobody teaches them how to lie. Nobody teaches them how to be jealous. Nobody teaches them how to do those things. And yet they'll be disobedient, jealous. They'll be uh, easily angered, all of those things on their own. See, David said, surely I was sinful at birth birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Well, going back to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, now do you see the need for the virgin birth? Come on, do you see the need? Why is Jesus going to be born of a virgin? And what we mean by that is it's not that she's a virgin when Joseph has sex with her. It means she remained a virgin at the conception. She did not have sex with a man. Why is that important? Because every person is made sinful at conception because of the, the curse passed down through our DNA. So sometimes people say, well, is it just spiritual? No, it's also physical. But is it just physical? No, it's also spiritual. The spiritual affected the physical, and the physical affects the spiritual. We are spiritual beings in physical bodies, and what Adam and Eve did in their physical bodies affected their spirit, and their spirit affected their bodies. And so until we get the resurrection, we're going to be in sinful bodies, even if we're born again. And so, yes, we can be born again and have a new life, but we'll never be perfect like how Jesus was perfect because Jesus is perfect from get-go. I can now become perfect because my heavenly Father is perfect and I've been born again, but Jesus was born in a state of perfection, remained in a state of perfection unto his death to be the perfect sacrifice and therefore raised in perfection. Can I hear any amen to that? See, you and I could never have saved the human race. In other words, if you would have died on behalf of somebody else's sin, it would have done nothing for them spiritually. Maybe you would have died as a martyr. People have done that before or as a war hero. But you or I and all other humans never could have died on behalf of somebody else's sins. Jesus Christ had to be perfect to die for our sins. Another way of looking at it is like this. How can you give a blood transfusion to someone with AIDS to help them, you know, get better blood? And let's say that was the way to cure. How could you give them a blood transfusion to help their AIDS if you had AIDS? How could we as sinners die for other sinners and expect sins to be forgiven if we are sinners ourselves? It wouldn't happen. Now go with me to uh, Isaiah chapter 9. So what do we learn from Proverbs God has a son. God has a son. What do we learn from the book of Daniel? It's going to be a son just like us. He's going to look just like us. What do we learn from Isaiah chapter 7? Is that he is going to be born of a virgin, perfect and blameless. And then now look at what we learn from Isaiah chapter 9. Look at Isaiah chapter 9 as we get all of these wonderful names. Remember, Proverbs says, well, what's his name? What is he going to be like? And so Isaiah said, he's going to be Emmanuel, God with us. And then now we get more names. Look at Isaiah 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. 
Now, I want everybody to notice the difference in the language here. Just right here, which we say over during the time of Christmas, goes over people's heads. A child is what? But a son is what? Given. Now, notice the difference. Is the son born? No, the child is born. The son is given. What does that mean? The son pre-exists the child's birth. Sometimes people think, oh, this is the day Jesus was born, therefore this is the day he was, this is when he existed, he started existing at his birth, because that's what we say about ourselves, that's what we say about Muhammad, the day he was born, that's the day he started existing, that's what we say about Buddha, the day he was born, the day he started existing, but look at what Isaiah says, the day that this child is born is not the day that the son starts existing. The son is going to be given into the flesh, into the body of the child. And so the way I like to look at it is, if you went into space, you would put on a spacesuit. But would you have existed before the spacesuit? In other words, when you first put on the spacesuit, does that now mean you started existing? No. But what you did was change how you were existing. You were existing without a spacesuit. Now the circumstance of your existence is with a spacesuit. Did Jesus exist before putting on an earth suit? Yes. And so when he comes to earth, he's putting on the child's earth suit. Think about that. But he comes from long ago, which we have time. I'll get into Micah 5 too. But his origins are, let's just go there right now. Go to Micah chapter 5 verse 2, please. How many want to see where he's coming from? Amen. Because the Bible says a son is given. Where is he given from? Where is he coming from? Look at Micah chapter 5 verse 2. One of the smaller books of the Bible. Many times people don't think about this book. It's after the book of Jonah. Micah chapter 5 verse 2. It says, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathoth, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come one to rule for me, one who will be the ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old. From where? Ancient times. And if you look at the scripture, there is no other way to look at these words, old or ancient times, other than eternity past. Uh, go to the King James and put that in there just so they can see another translation, please. When we use that word old or we use that word ancient times, remember uh, the father in that Daniel 7 vision is called the ancient of days. And if I get time, I want to go back to that Daniel prophecy. Don't let me forget. Just say, hey, the Daniel prophecy because I, I got so excited and just left right after uh, the first part there. But look at it here in the, um, in the King James because it says from ancient times and of old. Look at how it says here. He's from old and from where? Everlasting. Those words are the exact same words that describe the Father. In that prophecy of Daniel where he sees the Son of Man receiving power and authority and glory, he's going to the Ancient of Days. So when you see in the NIV using the word ancient or in the King James using the word everlasting, it's talking about eternity past, before time even began. When we look at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis 1-1, it says, In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. And then we look to the beginning of the Gospel of John. You know, in the beginning was the Word, talking about Jesus, right? So that term, in the beginning, somebody say in the beginning. Yeah. 
In the beginning is where we get to the starting point of matter, space, and time, all of God's creation. And guess who's there? The Father, and who is he there with? The Son, and who else we know is there? The Holy Spirit as he broods over the water, the Bible says. Now going back to Isaiah chapter 9. For to us, look at verse 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. So what are we learning already here? From Proverbs, God has a son. From Daniel, he's going to look just like us. Isaiah, he's going to be born of a woman, but of a special birth. He's going to be born special without the pollution of sin, like we learned with Psalm 51. And now we see that he is given. Given from where? Eternity. That's from where his origins are from. And he's going to have the government on his shoulder. He's going to rule the world. And look at what he'll be called. He'll be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. These names right here describe who he will be. Notice that he's called Wonderful Counselor. Can anybody think of somebody greater to go to for counsel than Jesus Christ? He's called Mighty God. Is there any confusion to who this son is being born as a child? Come on. He is the son being born as a child. And who is he? Mighty God. And then what else? Everlasting Father. Now this is where we just need a little bit of understanding here. Remember we just looked in Micah chapter 5 verse 2 and it said his times are from ancient times and the King James says everlasting. You see that? It's that same word being used here. Now our friends oftentimes with the oneness Pentecostals, they say, see, look at the Holy Spirit's called a counselor. Jesus is called a counselor. The Father is obviously the Father. Now Jesus is being called the Father. Therefore, Jesus is the Father, Jesus is the Son, and Jesus is the Holy Ghost. This is where we have to correct them and say, no, it's not saying he's the person of the Father, but he is an everlasting Father. How many know I am a Father, but I am not my Father? How many know I'm a father? Everybody look up at me. I'm a father. How many know Joe's a father? There's my kids. But how many know I'm not my father? Okay? So two people can have the attributes of being a father and not be the same person. Does everybody see how that works? Let's go slow here. How many know I'm a counselor and Dr. Phil's a counselor, but I'm not Dr. Phil? Okay. So what can be said of Jesus is the same kinds of things that can be said of the Father and of the Holy Spirit, but that doesn't make him the Father or the Holy Spirit. Now, have you ever thought about what makes Jesus a father? He wasn't married. He didn't have any earthly children. So how is Jesus a father? Go to Isaiah 53, the same exact book that prophesies that he's an everlasting father tells us in what way he is a father. Somebody say, I'm a child of Jesus. Say, I'm his offspring. Amen. The reason why you are his offspring is because you have been born again by his sacrifice. By the sacrifice of Jesus, you've been born again and made a new creation. Look at Isaiah 53.10 talking about after he's been crushed and all of these things for our sins, which by the way, we have time we can get into this prophecy as well. Isaiah 53 tied with Genesis chapter 3 is amazing. But look at this right here. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer, talking about the Messiah who we know would be Jesus. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his what? 
he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hands. Did you know you are the offspring of Jesus? Because Jesus' seed remains in you, you now are the seed of God. Go with me to 1 John. I'll show you that the seed of Jesus. How many know when I say seed what I'm talking about? (laughs) Thank you, my brother, for understanding what seed is. Does anybody else here know what seed is? Go to 1 John chapter 3, verse 9. Did you know that Jesus is literally called, everybody watch here, and parents pay attention if you have to explain this to your children. Did you know that Jesus is called the sperma of the Father? Did you know that? And what does sperma sound like, adult class? Sperm. Actually, just go right over here, uh, over here in the the Greek. I'll show it to you where it says seed, right up there. Uh, Right-click on it so everybody can see it. Pastor's not being gross and dirty on Christmas, okay, in the Christmas message. Whenever that pops up, you're going to see the word sperma. Does everybody see it right there? If you can move the mouse, brother, so I can see it. S-P-E-R-M-A. Everybody say sperma. Wow. You learned something in the Bible. A little gross, but it's pretty cool. Is everybody still tracking? The father sends his son as a sperm, as a seed to bring forth offspring that will be like him. So the father is the father to the son, and the son is a father to us. Not God the father, but the source, the progenitor, when you get into the deep definition of father, the progenitor of the children of God. Look at what it says. This is, starting in verse 9, no one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. So how do we get the sperm of the Father in our hearts? Through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ becomes, as you you might remember from the parable, the seed that dies, that might live and multiply. Do you remember when he said, unless a seed dies, it, it, it lives, it dwells alone. But when a seed dies, it brings forth fruit. You are the fruit and the offspring of Jesus. Also, the Bible says that when we look at the book of Revelation, that Jesus is not only the offspring of David. When we look at the child's body, he came from David. But it says he's also the root of David. He is the seed of David, and he's also the root of David. In other words, he's the creator of the line of David, and he came from the line of David. Now going back to Isaiah chapter 9. How many learning something today at a Christmas service? Amen. He is uh, called Mighty God, Wonderful Counselor, Everlasting Father, and then Prince of Peace. And of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on forever. And the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Everybody say amen. 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 Now go with me to Daniel chapter 7. Here's some prophecies that are about ready to come to pass. 
How many believe there's going to be some prophecies that are going to come to pass involving Jesus? Let me build this up in such a way that will encourage you, and then we'll end out today's services, uh, service today. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 7. There you go. Now go to verse 15. I, Daniel, was troubled in the spirit. Why do you think Daniel was troubled in the spirit? He just saw a man, someone that looked like a man, get worshipped as God. That was kind of troubling to him when he only thought maybe the Father was God. He now sees someone come to the Father, the Ancient of Days, and get worshipped. Just go back up a little bit so everybody can see where we're at. You see that's those scriptures that we just read? He saw this happen. He's troubled in his spirit. Now it's going to begin to get more clear to him. I, Daniel, was troubled in the spirit, and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one of those standing there and asked him the meaning of all of this. So what's the meaning of everything we just read? So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are four kings that will rise from the earth. But the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. How many here are children of the Most High? You are the ones who win in the end. You get to receive the kingdom of God because the Son of Man whooped the devil and got it back for us. Why was Jesus born? Just to kind of make sure I summarize this as well as the prophecies. Jesus was born to take back what the devil stole from us. When humanity sinned and invited the devil to be the king or the Lord or God of this age, the lowercase g, we lost what we were given. We had the authority. So when Jesus comes back as a man in the flesh, rather, when he comes the first time, he comes to establish the kingdom of God. When he comes back, he comes to now enact what he has started to finish what he started. Somebody say, I'll be back. Amen. That's what Jesus said. He said it first. He said it first. So what is going on here? Okay, so these are four great beasts. They're four kings. They're going to rise from the earth, but the holy people of the Most High, they're going to receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. Verse 19. Then I wanted to know the meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others and most terrifying, with its iron teeth and bronze claws. The beast that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot wherever was whatever was left. Now, I believe this last beast is the beast of the Antichrist that we're going to see in Daniel 9, that we also talked about in first service, okay? I also want to know about the ten horns on its head and about the other horn that came up before which three of all of them fell. How many, how many know this sounds familiar? He remembers our series in Revelation about the ten horns and these various different things and this final beast. This is the Antichrist. This is what is still going to come. Isn't this exciting? We, some of us might be looking at some of these prophecies going, man, I, I wasn't there when Emmanuel came, when it all made sense, like how God would be with man. I wasn't there when the Son of Man came and showed us he's also the Son of God, like Proverbs said, and like how Daniel said. Oh, I wasn't there when Isaiah showed us that he was going to be the mighty God, wonderful counselor, all of these things. I wasn't there. But guess what? You're here right now, and you get to see the second coming. How many are ready for the second coming? Amen. So we'll just read just a little bit more, and then I want us to fast forward to Isaiah 9, I mean uh, Daniel 9. I wanted to know about these ten horns on its head and the other horn that came up before which three of them fell, the horn that looked more imposing than all the others, and that had eyes and a mouth and that spoke boastfully. This is the Antichrist and the false prophet. As I watched, this horn was raging war against the holy people and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the holy people of the Most High, and that time came when they possessed the kingdom. Come on, how many want to possess the kingdom? How many want to be here when the Ancient of Days sends the Son of Man to set all this right? 
Amen. Now, go to Daniel chapter 9. Oh, so excited. I'm glad that you came to church today. Go to Daniel chapter 9. Otherwise, I'll just be preaching to myself. I'm very glad that you're here. Can I hear an amen? amen. Come on, somebody. Praise God. Now, go on down here to chapter 9, verse 24, tapping on to what we learned in first service about these wise men. Why do I think wise men were seeking Jesus in the form of a star? Because the book of Numbers says that a star will arise out of Judah. And why do I think they were doing it around that particular time? Because of Daniel's prophecies. It says the Magi had come from the east. Where is Babylon and Persia compared to Jerusalem? It's to the east. More than likely, it's a best guess, these Magi were students of Daniel's ancestors, or the, the, the ones that Daniel raised up. They were ancestors of those people. They had learned about Daniel. They had learned about these scriptures, and they were putting them into practice. And like I said, you can go back and watch, uh, listen to that message. But now look here in Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. Seventy-sevens are discreed. So seventy-sevens. And sevens, we're going to believe our years, those of you who have been around. But there's going to be seventy-sevens. So just imagine there's seventy-sevens. Seven. Just think of seven, like the, like the number seven, and there's 70 of them. Here's a seven. Here's a, there are 70 sevens. They are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression and to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the holy place. Somebody say, that's for me. Notice, thank you, that Jesus is going to come. What is he going to do? He's going to finish transgression. He's going to put an end to sin. He's going to atone for sac of uh, wickedness by being a sacrifice. And he's going to bring in the everlasting kingdom through the righteousness and the vision and the prophecy that's all been there because of his anointing. That word anoint, just go ahead and highlight over it there, please, is the word Mashiach. Just right-click on it right there. Mashiach literally means Messiah. Is everybody tracking with me? Does anybody know what the word Messiah means? It means to cover to anoint. When we say Jesus is the anointed one, do you know that we're literally saying Jesus is the covered one? And what is he covered in? He's covered in the power of God. He's covered in the spirit of God. He's covered in all of those wonderful things. Thank you, my brother. Keep going to verse 25. Know and understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, do you notice that now he's called the anointed one, but it says above there he's anointed. Now he's known as the anointed one. Sometimes you think about these movies like Star Wars, you know, like Luke Skywalker, he's the chosen one and all of these things. And sometimes there's these prophecies that go before these heroes. There is nobody in, actually, in actual human history that has ever had more prophecies written about them and fulfilled than Jesus Christ. Don't let anybody tell you any different when it comes to Jesus. Jesus was prophesied as the anointed one 600 years before his birth. Think about that. Isn't that impressive? Who else would know human history to be able to put something 600 years in the future or to know about something 600 years in the future and put it down in writing? This one will be anointed. He will then be known as the anointed one. He will come, and then there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. And it, talking about the temple, will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. And after the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be what? Come on, somebody say put to death. Come on, what will happen with the anointed one? Put to death. Notice this. It's our last prophecy here. I don't have time to get into the rest, but I want you to notice this. 
600 years before Jesus comes in talking about a prophecy that is grandiose about all these amazing things he's going to do, it is also prophesied he will be put to death. Does that sound like something you could just make up? God is going to come in the flesh. Think about this. You're reading Proverbs. Do you know who God is? Do you know who his son is? They're thinking, I didn't know he had a son. We're seeing multiple Yahwehs or one Yahweh over here and another Yahweh over there. But we didn't know that was a father-son relationship. So they're learning from Proverbs. God has a son. And then they learn from Isaiah. Oh, wow, this son's going to be born of a virgin. They learn from Daniel. This son is going to look just like us, be born of a virgin, be sinless, though. And then he's going to be all of these things, God with us, mighty God, all of these things that we're going to look up to and worship. But hold on, hold on. In these same books, it says he's going to be put to death. Do you know how shocking that would be to them? This is even why when you talk to the Jewish people of today who reject Jesus, they always say, how could Jesus be the Messiah? How could he be Emmanuel? How could Jesus, who had come on this earth 2,000 years ago, be the mighty God, everlasting Father, all of these things, and be put to death? How could Messiah die? And yet they don't even know their own scriptures. In the scriptures, not only here, but also Isaiah 53. Let's just pause here and look at Isaiah 53 again. Not only does it say he will be put to death here, but Isaiah 53 says why he will be put to death. Why is Jesus going to die? For our sins, transgressions. Look at Isaiah chapter 53, starting around verse 4. Surely he took up whose pain? Is there going to be pain and death for him? Yeah, but whose pain is he taking up? Our pain. And bore whose suffering? Is there going to be suffering in his death? But whose suffering is he taking? Our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God. I've never done it, but I've heard that people have asked Jewish people, people who today do not believe Jesus is the Messiah, to read these portions of Isaiah, because, you know, most people don't read their scriptures, and to ask them, is this from the New Testament or Old Testament? And I've heard from those who minister to Jewish people that they always say, oh, of course, that's Jesus. That has to be talking about the New Testament. This is hundreds of years before Jesus is even born. Daniel, 600 years before the birth. And it says the anointed one, this amazing person that we learned in Daniel, is going to have all authority, power, and glory, all of these things, ruling and reigning like God upon the earth with with the ancient of days. Literally says, but he'll be put to death. How did they miss that? It's because they didn't want to see the suffering servant. Isaiah says why he's going to feel pain. Because remember, there's all these different options people say about what Jesus could have done as our Redeemer. Oh, he could have just came from heaven to earth. We all would have saw him, and then he could have been crucified. We all would have believed in him. Well, first of all, he wouldn't have been a man like us. And remember, it was Adam with Eve who, who brought the curse on the earth. And if he was going to break the curse, he had to play by the same rules of humanity. He would have been breaking his own rules, right, by coming down as Superman. So he had to be born. And then other people say, okay, but then why did he have to suffer? Why doesn't he just, you know, in front of everybody do almost like, I have these weird thoughts in my mind when I try to give you examples about the Bible. This one is from Prometheus, the prequel to Aliens, how life got seeded on the earth. Well, one of the ways that they say it happened was through an alien, one of these advanced aliens coming, eating a pill, and then dissolving his DNA into the water. Did anybody else watch Prometheus? Nobody besides me. How many just followed the story, though? 
A few of you, let me say it again. The way that some people believe the earth got life is by an alien coming, taking on some chemical, and then dissolving into water. And by this alien, with this chemical dissolving into water, that's how life started. That sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? But do you know that some of the smartest atheists in the world actually give that as a theory? Richard Dawkins, one of the smartest atheists in the world, says, I can't explain how life started on earth. One of my best guesses is that aliens seeded it like a garden. So then what do we just ask them? Where did the alien come from that seeded this, this, earth, this earth garden? Where did that one get seeded from? And then what seeded that? What seeded that? But now track with this. Why does he suffer pain? Why doesn't he just come here and just dissolve in front of all of us? He's suffering our pain. He's taking our suffering. Watch it. He was punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. We, or rather, we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. So literally, the Bible is prophesying to these Jewish people hundreds of years prior what their reaction is going to be. So when I talk to Jewish people, I say, basically, do you think the Christ, Jesus, was punished by God because he wasn't a good Jew? And most of them will say yes. As a matter of fact, in some of their Talmud, they mock Jesus very vulgar. They actually say that he's in hell right now because of him being a bad Jew and leading uh, people astray. So I ask him, well, you think he was struck, struck, uh, you know, stricken by God, punished by God? And sometimes they'll be honest and say yes and go, and you can show them here in Isaiah, you take them right here and go, well, that's exactly what God said you would say about him. You would say he was punished. You would say somehow he failed. You would say somehow he was just being stricken and afflicted. But keep going, verse 5. But he was pierced for whose transgressions? Our transgressions. He was crushed for whose iniquities? Our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are what? Healed. Thank you. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, when we look at the prophecies, we begin to understand why he was put to death. Going back to Daniel chapter 9. Going back now to Daniel chapter 9. It's, it's something that we look at it and we go, man, how could you miss it? It was right there in writing. But yet we have people in this culture who not only have the Old Testament, have the New Testament, and they're still falling for silliness and not worshiping Jesus. We have people still in this culture going to the horoscope and, and trying to read the stars instead of going to the one who made the stars. So we can't look down upon these Jewish people for missing it when we have all of the covenants, we have all of the understanding of the prophecies, and yet we still have people living in sin as supposed Christians, not doing what God commanded them to do and looking for other gods. I was uh, looking at YouTube the other day, and I heard about this cult leader who claims he has lived only on air. He's called a breathitarian, that he has given up all food, all drink, all sex, and all of these things in life. He's celibate and all of this, and he only lives on air. This is what I did because I'm used to doing this now. I then just took his name, and I put in exposed in YouTube, and then immediately came up the expositions of him, and one of these women came and said how he tried to rape him or, or she, she basically got violated by him. And I, I don't believe she deserved that in any way, but it shocked her that this man would be a liar and a fraud and all of these other things. But what do I always say? The moment you leave Jesus, you have now opened yourself up to all of these different cults and these different things. People say, oh, you know what? I'm smarter than that. I won't fall for that. And yet you see it time and time and time again, that when people walk away from the truth of Jesus Christ, they fall for these ridiculous lies. And so it's sad to think, but here's this woman that could have been in church 
and yet she was following some breathitarian wonder why she's getting touched in naughty places. It's because you chose to follow somebody that was wicked. I'm following somebody that was born of a virgin. His name was Emmanuel, God with us, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He is the Son of God, the Son of Man. Are you listening today? I just, can't get, I just can't get over it. There's nobody like my Jesus. How many are still hooked on Jesus? How many still think he's the greatest? Amen. Look at now, once again, Daniel chapter 9 and see how it's going to work. There's going to be these 77s. There's going to be first seven sevens, and then there's going to be 62 sevens. Verse 26, after the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. So did Christians, everybody think about this, did Christians make up the story of the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus because they made an oopsie of the wrong Messiah? In other words, people have tried to say, we have made up this death, burial, and resurrection story because Jesus was a rebel. He died. It crushed everybody's hopes of him being the Messiah. So then they had to make up a story about a dead, rising Messiah. Okay, so he died. He, he, let's just say he rose then, right? Let's tell everybody he rose from the dead because we can't have a Messiah that's dead. Did Christians make it up? God forbid. It says it right there. The anointed one would be put to death. Another question to ask Jewish people who use these same prophecies to only believe in one coming and they reject Jesus' first coming, I say to them, when Jesus comes, or rather just the Messiah, we'll use the Messiah title, when the Messiah comes, will he do everything you think Jesus didn't do? You know, go to war, take over the nations, bring the kingdom of God. Oh, yes, he'll do all that. And you also believe he'll be put to death? They always go, no, no, no. It says David's heir, the king, the Messiah, has an everlasting kingdom. That's what they'll use, those scriptures, right? Because Jesus can't be the everlasting king of David because he died. And then I'll show them, but hold on. It says right here, the anointed one would be put to death. If you do not have the two comings of Jesus Christ, you cannot reconcile the scriptures. In other words, they have to do something with the scripture where he is put to death. Now, when Jesus comes the second time, do we believe he gets put to death? Does he get put to death the second time? When he comes on his horse in those battles, does he get put to death? No. So when did he get put to death in his first coming? That's why you have to see the two comings of Christ. Because the Jewish people now who reject Jesus because he died actually have missing prophecies. Your Messiah will never be put to death. Now, the sad truth is, is that they're going to recognize him as the Messiah, and they'll understand the two comings when he's coming to judge the earth at Armageddon, and 144,000 of them are saved. But now, until then, their people are lost. And so we have to preach to the Jewish people the truth of a Messiah who came once in a manger, born of a virgin. Because once again, we have to ask them, who's born of a virgin in your, in your talks here? Because the Messiah to them cannot be born of a virgin, have this godlike manifestation. They believe he's just a prophet, kind of like how Muslims do. And so how do you fulfill these? They're going to have all these leftover prophecies where we as Christians, we have someone born of a Messiah, don't we? I mean, born of a virgin, our Messiah. We have someone being God with us, don't we? We have our Messiah being everlasting Father. How is he the everlasting Father? Because he's the Son of God equal with the Father. Can I hear an amen? Look at it. They will put him to death and he'll have nothing. The people of the ruler 
will come, the people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city. This is that fourth beast we were talking about in chapter 7. And the sanctuary, and the end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end. Desolations have been decreed. He will confirm, this is talking about that beast, the Antichrist. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. So we had the first seven sevens for the building of the temple, the next 62 sevens until the Messiah came, and then there's that missing seven that we believe is at the end times, and that's what it's talking about. In the middle of the seven, that's at the three-and-a-half-year mark, this Antichrist or this world leader will put an end to sacrifice of the offering. Now let me ask you a question. If we believe that the end has not come yet, but a part of the end coming means that somebody stops sacrifice at a temple. What does that presuppose that there will be something in, in Jerusalem? What does that presuppose will be there? A temple. I know that was a long explanation, but I want everybody to get this. If our scripture says this world leader at the end is going to stop sacrifice in the temple, what must be there for him to stop? A temple. He, there must be a temple. Now, is there a temple in Jerusalem right now he can stop sacrifice? No, there isn't one. So we're looking forward to this, aren't we? How many are looking forward to this? I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to the end coming and Jesus coming back. In the middle of the seven, he'll put an end to sacrifice and offering, and at the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes de desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. Now, let's have Vinny come up quickly, please, and, and put it all together. We look at the book of Proverbs, and it's the first place, if you're looking at chronological order, where the Bible actually says God has a son. If I was to ask you, show me in the Bible the first place we know that God has a son, you wouldn't be able to point it out any sooner than Solomon. Solomon, which we read at the very beginning, said, hey, do you know who God is? Do you know his son? Do you know his name? You would have started to learn, okay, God has a son. God has a son. And then you begin to learn about the son. And Daniel is the one who begins to describe him. What does Daniel say? He's one like the son of man. Son of man, son of man, okay. So he's going to look like us, talk like us, have eyes, ears, okay. And what is he going to do? He's going to get all of the same things that God has. And he's going to rule and reign just like God, and everybody's going to worship him. Okay, okay, tracking. How is he going to do that? How does a man get what God has and it not be idolatry. Isaiah, he'll be born of a virgin and a child will be born that day, Isaiah 9, but the son is being given. Ah, so the son that pre-exists pre the childbirth is the one coming? Yeah. The one that Solomon was talking about? Yeah. But who is he in his nature? Everlasting Father, Mighty God, Wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace. Where does he come from? We go to Micah chapter 5, verse 2. His origins are of old, ancient times. You mean the same one that we call the Ancient of Days? He's from the same time period of that one? Yes, his time frame is equivalent to the ancient of days. His time, his origins are of ancient times. What is he going to do? Daniel continues to write. He's going to conquer the last beast. 
it's going to look like before he comes that he has taken over, the beast has taken over the whole world. He's going to conquer that beast and he's going to be a mighty king. But hold on. Somewhere before that, he's going to get put to death. See, Daniel just runs through it. He comes. He's going to be a mighty king. Get put to death and then rule and reign. Okay, hold on, Daniel. How does God the Son, God in the flesh, born of a a virgin, how does this one die? Isaiah 53. He dies because he gives his life to be a sacrifice. He doesn't allow, uh, he doesn't get taken by his enemies. He allows his enemies to take his life. Why? For our pain, for our sufferings, for our sin. And then what else is going to happen? He's going to keep his word and rule and reign. And so everyone here, we have prophecies to look forward to. I'm glad my brother's excited. I'm just like you. We have the opportunities to now look towards this and say, okay, these sevens have already happened. 49, seven times seven is 49 years. From the time of Ezra, 49 years with Nehemiah. Was the temple built? Yep. 62 sevens, okay, those 400 and plus years. Yes, did that happen and the Messiah come and get put to death? Yep, that happened. So now what are we waiting for? This last seven of this abomination to be poured out and for Jesus Christ to come and to destroy his enemies. I want you to look at some of Jesus' last words in closing now because he's not just coming as that baby in a manger. Look at Revelation chapter 1 of a prophecy that we're waiting to see come to pass. And now this is my challenge to us in this place. Will you miss his second coming like how the Jewish people missed his first coming because it doesn't line up with what you think? Or will you be like how we've learned here before to be like a John the Baptist preparing his second coming, ready? Look at Revelation chapter 1. Look at what Jesus says in verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and I am the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore what you have seen and what is now and what will take place. When Jesus Christ comes, he will come in the power and the glory of his Father. Look at Revelation chapter 22, verse 7, right at the last chapter of the book. Look, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written in this scroll. And then in verse 12, he says, look, I am coming soon. And how many know if he said that 2,000 years ago, soon is getting really soon right now. He says, my reward is with me. And I will give to each person according to what they have done. I am the Alpha and Omega. How many know these are the titles of divinity? The first and the last, the beginning and the end. How many firsts can you have? How many firsts can you have? You can only have one. So if he's first with the Father, and if he's first with the Holy Spirit, they must be sharing the same divine nature, not three gods with three persons in one God. Are you listening? 
Because if the Father is first and He is first and the Holy Spirit is first, that's three firsts unless they share the same nature. He said, I am the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magical arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root. Everybody get this. I am the root and the offspring of David. He is the son and the child given. He is the creator of David and yet the one who came into the lineage of David. I am the root and the fruit of David, the bright and morning star. And look at his last words in our scriptures in verse 20. Yes, I am coming soon. We are here 2,000 years later because he was faithful to come the first time. I went through what, about six, seven prophecies by the thing, by the time it was done. There's over 300. Look them up about his first coming but there is more than four times that about his second coming they uh, they estimate upwards of 1200 prophecies about Jesus Christ's second coming and he's not coming as a baby in a manger he's coming as our lord and savior to conquer the earth to rule and to reign and so in closing today may we not miss him by being so busy to think, oh, it can't happen now. I still haven't got married, you know. No, it has to wait. Or it can't happen now. More of these things have to happen. I'm telling you, we need to always be ready, even if sometimes our end times prophecy models don't work. For example, sometimes people say, well, the gospel has to be preached to every nation and tribe. That's what the Bible says. But what if the internet suffices and that's already been done? We're not waiting for anything else then. Right? Because a lot of times people say, like the Joshua Project, they list out all the languages we still don't have Bibles in. So they go, okay, well, that's what we're waiting on for Christ's second coming. He said all the nations will have it. But what if the internet, what if, what if what's already been given is what counts and it's over and we go home tonight? In other words, don't let anything get you to push off Jesus' second coming because the way they understood prophecy could miss his first coming. And we could miss his second coming and not be prepared. In other words, be left behind. So don't wait. Like some people, I'll repent when I see the rapture. No, that's too late. You're getting the mark of the beast or you're getting beheaded now. You're going to be here for the whole thing. And so when we look at those prophecies, we see he was so faithful to give them to us that now we are to be ready for his second coming. And so I pray as you're celebrating Christmas and you're going through this season together with your friends and family that you invite them to know Jesus. You know, Tell them about Jesus as a baby. That's cool. But tell them what this Jesus is going to look like when he comes back. He's going to have a rod of iron. He's going to crush the nations. Matter of fact, in closing, for the second time, go to Micah 5.2. Where is he going to be born? Where is Jesus going to be born, the Messiah? What city? Come on, y'all. Say it like you've heard a Sunday school story before. Bethlehem. And we've read this before, right? We've already read this. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. He's a ruler of Israel. His origins are from the old, ancient times. How many remember verse 2? 
How about verse 3? Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she is in labor to bear forth the son, and the rest of her brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd the flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live security securely then from his greatness, and it will reach the ends of the earth. The glory of God spreads when he comes and he takes over the earth. How many are ready for that, Jesus? Yeah, going back up, please, just to the verses right there. It's not just, oh, he's born, and that's just it. No, he comes to rule. Look at verse 1. Look at what it says. It says, marshal your troops now, city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with the rod. And then it goes on to say this. So this is what we think is going to happen. When the Battle of Armageddon begins, they're going to send off the first fire. They're going to shoot off their weapons against our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And yet he's going to come and destroy the earth. Hope you're ready for that day. Let's pray. Father, I thank you today that you sent your son the first time to be our Lord and Savior. And now you're sending him again to rule and reign as a king. Altar workers and band, would you come as we're just closing in prayer? Everybody where you're at right now, would you check and make sure your heart's right with that Jesus? He's coming to rule. He's coming to conquer But yet he wants to be our Savior. In other words, he wants to change your heart before he changes the earth. With every head bowed and eyes closed, if you don't know that Jesus yet, ask him to come into your heart. Repent of your sins. Be born again. Pray something like, Father, forgive me. I want Jesus to be my Savior to cleanse me. Pray something like that in Jesus' name and watch what God will do in your life. Say, I believe that Jesus died for me. Say, I believe he rose again. Confess. And watch what Jesus will do. For anyone here in just a few moments that's praying something like that, we'll have prayer workers up here for you because we don't want anyone to miss knowing Jesus today. And now lastly, before we stand up and get ready to to enjoy the rest of the day from this place, I want you to make sure every Christian here, you're right with that God. The God who would be so meticulous to send all of these prophecies so that we would know who he was. Are you serving him 110% today? Are you sold out? Because if you're not sold out for Jesus, you need to repent. There is nothing more important than Jesus' kingdom. Remember what he said, seek first the kingdom of God and the righteousness. All these other things will be added unto you. There's nothing more important than Jesus' kingdom. Today, if you've placed your job, your family, your, your career in front of him, but you consider yourself a Christian, repent today and say, Jesus, set my heart on fire for you. Give me passion for you. A few moments will change your life today. And if you haven't been baptized in the Holy Spirit yet, empowered, as the Bible says, it's a gift that he gives. If there's any Christmas gift you wanted to get today, it's salvation and be baptized in the Holy Spirit. You can even begin to pray as we get ready to stand up in just a moment. But I want us to be right with God. Don't do it out of emotion. Do it because you know that God has shown himself to be true. So often people think faith is blind. Do those prophecies sound like blind faith to you? Why do you think God gave us those prophecies? Like I said, they numbered upwards of 300. He gave it so that you and I could rest securely. This Jesus is the Son of Man, the Son of God, the child born of a virgin. This is the one who will conquer the Antichrist in his kingdom. This is the one who was put to death for our sins. A few moments and then we'll stand up. But Lord, I pray you check every one of our hearts starting with me. May no one miss you today. I'm so thankful you were born. I'm so thankful you came. 
but you are of ancient times. You are of, of old. I'm so glad that you did this for us, oh Jesus. But let us not forget in the nostalgia of this time the importance of knowing you personally because you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You're the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. No one else is like you. We will all see your kingdom come, whether we're on the right side of it or not. Every eye will see you. Every tongue will confess. Every knee will bow that you are Yahweh. Yahshua, the Mashiach, is Yahweh forever and ever. Can we stand up now and give it up to Jesus as we say amen? Can you just give him a good hand clap of praise?